0: Napoor tessa, bakawato, arda had to, some ma, some bootas and napoor tessa, bakawato, arda Aparu tade sangamatasa towara, ye sort satang. So, this is the uh, Saturday night meeting, here at Bajan Sajito returned yesterday from his sabbatical leave, let him off the leash for one year. And Ajahn Kariniko has returned. And I'll be leaving. In, a <laughs> in about a week's time, I'll be going back to Amravati. I thought next next Saturday we'd invite uh, tanajan Sujito to give the evening talk, and they're all very curious to find out about his years his year long leave wandering. he went all around the planet he he uh, kind of left out South America, but managed to. Get to every other place, every other other continents, and this is all on uh, invitations and having no money. Now this is kind of the perks of the holy life. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't afford to live like this if we were ladies <laughs> That's the kind of uh, irony of, it uh, seemed like when I was a layperson. <coughs> <It> was, uh, <coughs> traveling was my great ambition ever since I was a child. To see every place on the planet and traveling really excited me. And remember when I enlisted enlisting in the Navy just to have the opportunity to go to Japan for free. And then, uh, then since I've been a monk, i saying when I joined the Navy and see the world, I saw a little bit of the world. But uh, then I became a Buddhist monk and, uh, and I expected to kind of uh, disappear into a monastery in Thailand, you know, like going into the monastery and the door is locked behind you and you're nev- never seen again. I was quite resigned to that, even though I even liked the idea of kind of living in a a kind of anonymous person in deep in the jungles of Southeast Asia. And uh, this was kind of like, it was not an an unpleasant fantasy, but uh, as life would have its own way, the way things change i've became somewhat of an international figure <laughs> so this was this was not planned this happened this happened so the holy life the monastic life as as i've learned it and lived it and this will be my fortieth years, a bhikkhu. So, that seems like a very long time, 40 years. But uh, in terms of the perception of 40, the number 40, 40 years, and uh, then uh, looking back over 40 years, it doesn't seem like a very long time. So Just noticing the difference, paying attention to the way we perceive things or hold concepts or numbers or values and then the you know this is this is one function of our mind is the intellectual one where we we name things and we have uh concepts for time past uh, present future the age our own age of our bodies we identify with and and then the lifetime of average human being here in UK now is 80, 90 years. Old people like me are becoming a nuisance to the society. They worry about us because we're, we'll be the majority of the population in about 10 years, I think. And all you youngsters will have to look after us, drooling old, demented But one time I remember a very old woman I knew, who was nearly 90, and, and, um, you know, she was going deaf and could hardly see, and, and, uh, she had, she had kind of an incredibly lively and youthful spirit, but her body was obviously, you know, pretty hopeless. Uh, and so she said, you oh, know, only the body gets old, your mind doesn't get old. And now that I'm old, I, I look back and I think, no, the mind, your mind doesn't get old. And When we talk about age, we're talking about the the age of the body. But mentally, uh, I you know, I don't feel old at all. Ageless, in other words. But if I if I'd spent my life maybe developing a sense of myself and in, in, in the in you know following the identities the conditioned ways of creating self as a person personality <clears throat> that might be something different. But since I've spent the past forty years you know investigating the way it is, looking into dhamma, seeing how things are. Then this uh, this getting stuck in the ruts of of thinking habits or emotional patterns or fixed views. This doesn't uh, this is you know seeing through this and seeing the suffering uh, and the unhappiness that is caused through attachment to the conditioned realm. Seeing that, then the uh, the Insight into letting go of it. Releasing yourself, unbinding yourself, freeing yourself from the limitation of the body, of the uh, habitual patterns of thought, attitudes, prejudices, biases, uh, all-conditioned mental states, emotional habits. So what is left if you let go of everything if you, if, you, if you really recognize, have that insight, the value of non-attachment, of letting go and the reality of non-attachment to the thinking mind it sounds like, well wh- I won't be anybody. Who will I be if I'm not somebody, you know, with an identity? Uh, if I don't, ha- I won't have any personality. I'll just maybe be like a a blank piece of paper, you know, nothing there, just a zombie maybe. So the idea of it, like an arahant, because just you know, totally without personality, free from all defilements, but a kind of being that, that doesn't seem, doesn't feel anything you think. And our heart wouldn't feel uh, things in life, you know. They're beyond grief, sorrow and anguish and just totally indifferent to everything. I remember uh, when I first started studying Theravada Buddhism in Thailand, they used to translate um, upeka which is now translated as equanimity, as indifference. And then I remember once a Thai teacher telling me that indifference is the highest state. Well, the English word indifference, I don't think is, you know, that is a a totally uninspiring word. You know, I'm practicing to become totally indifferent (laughs) to everything. That means I just don't care and don't want to care and don't feel anything and doesn't matter. It sounds more like depression to me. (laughs) (coughs) uh, Upeka, equanimity is a better word because it gives a sense of balance. but then the reality of that let's say of upeka or equanimity because uh, you know that that one can understand it conceptually the idea of emotional balance and, and that that is a intellectual function but the reality of it what is it you know so so this then is in meditation, what we're doing is is observing, witnessing the way it is. You can, you know, just by having a concept of upeka or equanimity as some kind of goal or desirable state. And then then we tend to conceive it as a, uh, maybe in, as, as some kind of ethereal state, where you don't feel anything. The the thinking process, remember, doesn't feel anything. If you're attached to concepts and ideas and words and teachings even, uh, all these things are, you know, they have no feeling in them. When we bind ourselves to that which isn't sensitive, which has no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, which is merely a mental concept, no matter how idealistic and uh, inspiring it might be to the human mind, it doesn't—you know—it has—it—it it, it doesn't open us to anything. It merely uh, binds us to an idea, to an ideal. So, so many uh, many of us coming from the Western world, you know, were brought up in in uh, societies where we, that are very idealistic. So the, the ideas of freedom and equality and uh, democracy can be, we can see it in very ideal terms and things that, how they should, everything should be fair and just and we should have honest politicians and, and really, you know, good statesmen and leadership and and everybody should have an equal chance in life. And taking this, taking ideals to, you know, the very best things you can think of, how everything should be. And I remember as a child, and growing up, and I was brought up as a Christian, so my mother would say, you know, God created everything. God created everything. He's the creator of the whole world. And then I fall down and, you know, take the skin off my knee and, and I say, why, why did he create pain? <laughs> I don't know what she replied, but... <laughs> <laughs> Why did Why did God create evil? You know, why did, you know, because if I were God, as an ideal, I wouldn't create pain. I'd make life painless, you know, according to ideals of how things should be. Free from pain. Free from all the evil forces. Free from hatred and greed and mean-heartedness and all the rest. So if I were God, I'd, I'd do better than God because I'm thinking on an ideal level of how things should be. So then God, the word God, becomes another ideal, isn't it? The perfect creator. And yet, in terms of even a child's mind, isn't it? The creation was didn't seem perfect. You know when you cry and don't get your own way and fall down and hurt yourself and and there's so many so much anguish and despair, even in childhood and then God created that, but as an ideal god uh, you know say uh, you're trying to to justify evil and pain and unfairness and crime and brutality and atrocity we we can think how can God allow this to happen not right he should interfere especially like the Jewish Holocaust you know these are the chosen people and he lets them lets all that horror, horror happen to them you know I think glad I wasn't God's chosen. <laughs> now this is, uh, this, I'm just pointing, I'm doing this just to point out what thinking is like and, and what, you know, thinking in terms of how things should be. Because, uh, you know, this is one function of the mind, but but notice that idealism um, when you when you attach to ideals all you can feel is angry or frustrated or upset because so much of our life is not you know is so far removed from what it should be as an ideal that we can just get get angry with God or just feel you know this this uh you know why can't why can't people get along why do they quarrel why do Men and women, when they get married, why do they divorce? Why they should stay together? Life should be fair. There shouldn't be all this inequality between the classes and groups, and this this great gap of wealth between the the uh, wealthy, affluent countries and the third world countries. It's not right. It's not fair. And that's indignation. It, I can create. Uh, this mood of indignation at the unfairness and injustice that I see around me, that I hear about. So this is a way of reflecting, of just seeing how the mind works when we, when we think, when we, thinking is our ability to, uh, it, it depends on memory, being able to, we have, we name things and we remember. We have names for things, we have ideals. We this function of the intellect is one that is critical. There's the best and the worst. Just notice how thinking operates. So this is this is bigger, smaller, better, worse. This is what should be, this is what shouldn't be. So As long as we're bound into this this realm of thought, and most of us are, you know, great thinkers. We we live our lives lost in our thoughts and ideas, obsessed with our own views, our own opinions, prejudices, biases, preferences. So then, all we can do is either try just forget about the world and just get, you know just resign ourselves in some negative way, um, or just say, well, just look after yourself, you know, make sure you have yours, that you're all right, or we can spend our lives just endlessly, you know, complaining or resenting the fact that there is so much corruption, unfairness, crime and so many faults in oneself and in, in the people you live with and the the neighbors. The governments, there's always something to to hate and to blame and to resent. So this is a kind of trap that, that, as human beings, because we have this retentive memory, ability to think and to create names, concepts, abstract concepts, have ideals. We can create angels and demons, you know, and the best and the worst, heaven and hell. So we're actually the creators of the world. And this Lung Pan Cha pointed out to me years ago. He said, who's the creator of the world? I said, God. And he said, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's not God. (laughs) It's desire. Desire creates the world. So this this wasn't sent in some kind of, you know, Ex cathedra style. He was uh, just is more like a reflection, you know, getting us to consider what is the world, and how what is the world that 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 my desires create. What I want, what should be, what I don't want, my loves and hates, my preferences. You know, the desire. For becoming, desire for getting rid of all the things, getting rid of pain, getting rid of injustice, getting rid of crime, getting rid of of all the pests, the Al-Qaeda, the terrorists. And so then, then... Uh, so the Buddha emphasized, uh, you know, in the teaching of understanding what desire really is. So this reflective ability, when we talk about reflection on the way it is, and these Buddhist teachings, they're pointing to always to the here and now. Not, they're not abstract ideas or theories. So in, when we Talking about the four noble truths or the dependent origination or any of these these uh traditional teachings that we have from the Buddha remember they're not they're not meant to be grasped intellectually and then uh, and then uh, kind of just played around with the mind because we can we can we can uh, we can figure it out in, in intellectually, but the reality but that that intellectual understanding is not liberating. The best it can do is inspire you to practice. So this reflective pattern, the Bariyati Dhamma like Bariyati Dhamma is a study or the, you know uh, learning the teaching. Say, the Baryati Dhamma, say, would be of learning the first noble truth. There is the Dhamma, there is Dukkha. I mean, there is Dukkha, there is this suffering. So that's a, that's a statement, that's an intellectual statement. That's, that's using the ability to think and conceive, using language. But it's a statement that there is dukkha. So suffering is something that you know we all experience. It's not a a rare, subtle experience. It's a common bond of all human beings. We all suffer, and so all of hum- all humanity has this common bond that we share. When we think of this bond of our humanity, all men, all women, all races, nationalities, rich and poor, young and old, is the common experience is the experience of suffering. So dukkha, then, is the Pali word which is much more kind of is, is suffering, English word suffering is, is uh, you know inadequate in many ways but it's good enough we don't have to be precise we just have to get the idea so then we then we, we the, then the, the Bhatti Dhamma then so there's Bharyati Bhatti which is practice we have to, you know, the, to practice this. The, the prescription for dealing with with dukkha is to understand it. Dukkha should be understood. So this is this is what they call buthibuti or buthibod. In Thai, the, the word buthibod is means to practice meditation. So in uh, Thailand, they say I'm a a buthibod monk. A I'm not just a Buryati monk that studies in Buddhist universities and memorizes Pali. I'm a Bhattibhat monk. This is how we used to talk in in, in uh, Thailand, you know, where Bhattibhat monks wear this this kind of uh, brownish color. Buryat monks, least in the old days, used to wear bright orange. They're uh, so kind of color-coded. You could tell who's the Bariyati and who's the Bati Now, when you go to Thailand, they all wear this color. They're prestigious now to be Bati monk. And then the, then the results of practice is Bati which is, uh, dukkha has been understood. It's the insight, you know, that knowing. It's the suffering has been understood after the practice you you know this you know this for yourself it's not no longer theory, no longer intellectual or uh something that has you know just that you are still trying to understand you know this understanding then is is a Jana understanding the word Jana is is a kind of profound knowing, gut knowing. It's not knowing about. It's an insight knowing. So these these three words, Bariyati, Bhati, 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 waiti, and Pali, and then apply those to the three aspects of the first noble truth. Then you notice the pattern exists, doesn't it? The Bariyati, there is the Dukkha, dukkha should be understood dukkha has been understood so this this is a this is a a, a teaching or a, an expedient means that uh, say reflect observe we have to not just you know get the idea of suffering but really look at what suffering is in our own experience like some people can think that they don 't suffer. They say i don 't suffer I 'm a happy person. So that means that that uh, it doesn't mean that all life, everything, is miserable and suffering. it 's not a, a kind of depressing statement that, that uh, everything is is bad and miserable, like it might sound if we just took it from an ideal level. But it's pointing to something that we can all tune into, that we all experience. Our own desire for something that we don't have. Wanting to become, wanting to become rich, wanting to be successful, wanting to be beautiful, wanting to be liked by people, wanting to achieve, wanting to be prime minister. Wanting to become an enlightened being, it can be even very altruistic. Wanting to become a really pure, unselfish, uh, compassionate human being, it can be grand. Wanting to get rid of you know, feeling upset or distraught because what you what you're feeling now is. Is anger or resentment or fear or lust or jealousy? We don't want any of these things because, our, you know, wanting to get rid of what we don't like. So just applying this to to just the ordinariness of daily life. This is what uh, all the monks and nuns here are doing all the time. Somebody asked the other day, what do the monks do during the day when they're in their rooms? (laughs) None of your business, is it? (laughs) How dare you ask such a question? Some masters give them the benefit of the doubt. They're all practicing either Bharyati, bati bati, and all you know throughout the day they have these profound insights. Buti waiti. Now the second noble truth is uh, you know the the origin of suffering, samudaya in Pali. So so this is suffering. It's uh, dukkha has an origin and this origin is due to uh, ignorance and the de- desires attachment to desire that comes out of this ignorance. So this is a statement this is a Bariyati statement. So if you just look at the, the Four Noble Truths from the Bariyati level it's, there is suffering suffering has an origin uh, a cause there's a cause for it suffering there's cessation of suffering, and the fourth noble truth there is the path of uh, to of non suffering there's the Eightfold path so that's the, that's the intellectual statement that's the teaching that you generally hear but then the second aspect of each truth is the is the prescription the bhati-bhati, should suffering should be understood. Suff- uh, the the uh, three kinds of desire that arise out of ignorance should be let go of. So in the second noble truth, the if you the the, the Buddha in, encouraged us to practice to observe desire dunha and attachment to get to know sense desire desire for sensual pleasure or. Desire for becoming, desire for getting rid of. Observing these, studying these is is bhāti bhāti. So it's not just memorizing the words and thinking about desire, but really observing, witnessing, knowing desire. So it's not getting rid of desire, but knowing desire, so that and the attachment that we we have to it. To be able to let go of it, so letting go, then the then the uh, butty weight, is, uh, desire, has been let go of. So you know, there's a knowing. Now these are all insight, what we call insight, the twelve insights, three aspects of each truth. So this is a very clearly stated teaching. You know, it's. It's, uh, there's nothing fuzzy about it. It's dealing with something so ordinary and that we don't have to, we don't have to beat ourselves, wear hair shirts, starve ourselves, uh, in order to experience suffering. I suffered more when, before I became a monk. When I had, you know, had more uh, luxurious life, you know, just uh, getting what you want and being, you know, something so unsatisfying about life. It's not what it should be. If if I were God, I would have created it perfect, so I wouldn't. There wouldn't be any suffering. There's this little boy that says. If I were God, I wouldn't have created suffering. I'd created a permanent happiness now, this is an ideal, isn't it pointing to the the limitation of ideas you can you can think of a permanent happiness where you're happy permanently, but that's not the experience that we have as human beings is it we're not we never we find no permanence in happiness. We would like it. We'd like that. You know, that'd be maybe what we're hoping for by by our meditation as monks, as Buddhists, to be permanently happy. With, is it? But that's an ideal. So in in reflecting, we're looking at happiness. We're not saying all is suffering and there's no happiness in life. But happiness is, you know, when we begin to observe our our own experience of happiness, that it is. It's very, it's impermanent. That you can't keep it. You can't sustain it. It has no, it doesn't sustain itself. It comes and goes. When the conditions for happiness arrive, you feel happy. You know, so when the conditions for unhappiness are here then you feel unhappy so this is this is a way of investigating the way it is into what we call dhamma so that you're actually observing knowing for yourself not coming from ideas of buddhism or or idealism or anything like that you know how uh, we we can idealize buddhists Remember somebody years ago, when I was active in the Buddhist Society in London, and and uh, Buddhist Society in London was always having internecine warfare. There are always these conflicts, and uh, and so somebody, you know, had just become a Buddhist, and and I remember her telling me, "I'm so disappointed, you know, I come to this society." And and uh, there's so many conflicts. Uh, I'd expected much more of Buddhists. So this is an ideal in that, uh, well, you know, maybe she'd been a Christian before. And in every Christian church I've ever been, and there was always factions fighting. The church I grew up in was was uh, vicious. <laughs> these, these good Christians that, they took holy communion every sunday when they got you know they were they were really vicious and nasty to each other turn the other cheek they wouldn't think of it <laughs> <laughs> but christians shouldn't be like that should they christians should be like jesus Buddhists should be like Buddha, and this is this is the kind of logic of idealism. If you were really a Buddhist, you would not hate anybody. Uh, you would you would have you have metta for everybody all the time. You'd never have a nasty thought or be jealous or envious of anybody. When when somebody got something that you've always wanted got the promotion at the office that you were hoping to get. If you were a Buddhist, you'd only feel Mudita. You'd feel happy for them. And you'd say, oh, goody, goody. <laughs> I'm glad you got that promotion and not me. <laughs> because it gives me more joy to feel Mudita than all the increase of salary that I really need. For my... <laughs> So that would be an ideal Buddhist, but the, they, even though we call ourselves Buddhists, remember basically we're reflecting on the the reality of, of being human. Now, being human is like this: having a body. Human body is like this. Now, this is not an ideal body, is it? It's gotten old not what it used to be. And um, so human bodies are not ideals, even though we can we can, you know, create I you know, how ideal human women should look or men should look. But the realities are like this. So we're looking at the way it is, not from comparing it with an ideal, but tuning in to the reality of existing, coexisting with this human body that I'm experiencing right now. With um, sense organs like eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, with a, with a brain, with a thinking mind, with a retentive memory. Because a retentive memory doesn't, re- doesn't necessarily only retain happiness and beauty and love and joy, but it retains every, you know, all kinds of the opposite. Anger, memories of, uh, you know, that create resentment, indignation, depression, guilt, fear. Like sitting here right now in the, in the Dharma hall, you know, it's a fairly safe place, isn't it? There's no kind of lurking dangers uh, around that I'm aware of. And so you know the so yet we could we could, by thinking, possibility, you know, thinking there might be somebody says, "You know, I was in here the other night, and I heard some strange noises, and saw some strange kind of something an energy in here that, and then we could start thinking, maybe it's a ghost, and we could become frightened. You know, how we create fear by thinking of horrible things that could happen to us. The possibility of of something coming out of nowhere, of some evil force or uh, alien force coming in and destroying, taking away what we love. We can create a whole scenario of that li- uh, while sitting in our own living rooms, uh, all the comfort and security of our homes. That's due to thinking, isn't it? So human beings, we can think, we have this ability to retain, uh, we have memory, so we, we, we can remember words, we can remember events in our lives, <coughs> and these This ability to remember then is, uh, you know, is where we create endless problems of guilt, remorse, fear. Fear of the future. Fear of our karma. Remember things that we've done, uh, you know, that were bad or evil or unkind or cruel. And then we can create fear of the future. Well, I'm going to be punished. I might be punished. I'll have to pay for that. Because we also have this sense of we should be punished for our wickedness. This isn't a free lunch. We have to pay for it in the end. So this sense of having to pay off is all about memory, thought, ideas, justice, fairness, so we live in a world, world of ideals, ideas, attachments to memories as self. You know, and to describe myself, I have to remember who I am. You know, and I, the self, you know, when I have become Ajahn samay, I have to remember I'm Ajahn samay. I have to remember that I was born 71, nearly 72 years, Years ago, in Seattle, Washington. That's a memory, isn't it? And that that's, a, that's my memory. And and so I, who, who I, because I was born, and I remember certain things, childhood memories and teenage memories, and on up to this age. So this has a sense of a continuous person or soul, of, of me having a history, me as a person. But it's all based on memory. Now if I investigate this, if this attachment to memory, blind attachment out of ignorance to memory, then there is a, you know, the, uh, this sense of a separate self, of a personality, I, and I remember the, the good things and the bad things that have happened to me or that I've done or said. And then there's fear or anxiety about the future. We have to pay for our sins. You know, so the concepts of reward, if you've been good, go to heaven and punish. If you've been bad, you go to hell. Now this is how, you know, this this... Dualism of the thinking mind. Thought is dualistic. It's it, that's its function. It divides and separates. The thinking process is for that. That's what it's for. It's a it's a worldly function. It's for the world. The, you know to measure things and to compare one thing with another. So for transcending the world being free from the world, no longer bound and limited by the worlds that we create, we give up thinking, let go of desire, not to annihilate thinking, but begin to use a different something that, that we have all, all along but we don't notice because we're so bound into the intellectual function, into the thinking mechanism. Now this is what I call intuitive awareness, intuition, or Sati And this is what the Buddha was was encouraging us to develop. And this you do through the baryati bhatibhati bhati waiti, through reflecting on the way it is. The Buddha gave us the baryati dhamma. So, we have the Four Noble Truths, the, the statements, the pres- the prescriptions, you know, the, what to do, you know, to practice, do this, and then the result of practice is an insight that you can't, that you have to know through, you know, through insight, not through concept. So, this is a different level of intelligence. Isn't it? This is a universal intelligence. It's not an intelligence that you acquire through the, through intellectual, uh, speculation or analysis. So in, uh, this emphasis on sattisampachanya, intuitive awareness, this is our ability to be awake and attentive Awake and attentive isn't isn't a concept or an idea. It's it's this word itself. If you it grasp, then then maybe you you know you don't uh, you're trying to figure out what it is. But don't try to figure out what it means. Do it. What is being awake? It's just this opening. It's relaxed attention. It's, it's a, it has its broad spectrum of spaciousness. It includes everything. It's not divisive. It's not critical. It doesn't judge anything. It's not saying what's right, wrong, good or bad. But it's intelligent. It's intelligent. So it's uh, what we call satipanya, or panya is the word for wisdom. So we start recognizing, discerning with wisdom rather than with the critical mind. The critical mind can operate and knows how things should be, shouldn't be. But the wisdom faculty knows how things are. This is what we call intuition awareness it's it 's an it's not thinking it can use thought, but it's not a thought doesn't depend on thought it's to be recognized because it's not something we lack it's something we don't recognize. It's not a part of our cultural uh, aspiration in the material, materialistic Western world or even Christianity. And they never mentioned satisampachanya to me. Intuition, awareness, mindfulness. It was all about believing in goodness and love and, and it's all very positive. But the word mindfulness actually never really used the word till I became Theravada Buddhist. <laughs> and I didn't really know what it meant when I first started. Mindful of what? <laughs> but this ends of mindful or even the word mind is not accurate, but it. Like consciousness, this we're experiencing, each one of us is, is, is experiencing consciousness right now. Consciousness with awareness, intuitive awareness, is then the discerning ability. So using this, this word discern means to know all condition, phenomena is impermanent. It's, it's discerning. It's not saying imp- there's a, impermanence is good or bad, right or wrong. But when we say all conditioned phenomena is impermanent, it's, it's uh, using the language for reflecting on the way it is. It reminds us to observe impermanence because our tendency is to be uh, attracted or repelled by the quality of what we're observing, of, our, of this or that, of the things, the objects, in consciousness discerning uh, there is no self in the created or the uncreated the anata from this position from this way of knowing of intuitive awareness, then the self is seen, you know, as a as some as an object rather than the subject. The self depends to to for me to become ajahn sumedho. You know, I have to think, and identify, and remember. But if there's just this intuitive awareness, then there's perspective on the thinking process but I'm not limited by those perceptions anymore by those identities so non-self anatta is like this it's that still point that That it's a self-sustaining it's not created by me I'm not making it up I'm not it doesn't depend on condition supporting it. It's recognizable, it's real, it's a fact. And it's and it's to be realised by each one of us. You have to realise it for yourself. So then in meditation it's rather than acquiring and gaining, it's all about letting go, relinquishing, tell there's nothing left. Now, when you think about that, you, you you can be frightened by that. If I let go of everything, you know, it sounds rather like annihilation. I won't have anything. I won't even know who I am. No memory. Who am I? I don't even know it anymore. At least I used to know I was Ajahn sameto Now I'm not. I don't know that. It sounds like you you know, like a really awful kind of thing to be doing to yourself. But so on the conceptual level it can sound like annihilationism especially the way the Theravada uh, style is, is phrased in the Baryate Dhamma. But remember it's, it's for reflection, for awakeness it's not for getting rid of, it's not annihilating, destroying, condemning. It's not negating the conditioned world but knowing the conditioned world. Now what, th- that which can know conditions as conditions. That knowing is not a culturally conditioned knowing. It's not knowing about the world, it's knowing the world. It's a jnana it's, dasana it's a profound knowledge it's direct knowing so it's discerning it's recognizing this is the deathless this is this is it and the conditions arise and cease so this this is it is is a recognition of reality it's real it's not it's not an imagined state, but it is recognized when you when you've actually let go of everything as long as you're trying to find it out of ideas, concepts, ideals, and the sense of yourself you know, you'll be running around the rest of your life, probably have to be reborn many other time, many more lifetimes, because you're caught in the trap trying to find nirvana and get it. You know, you're just, you, you know, you're caught in the trap of your idealism and your thoughts and the sense of yourself, that whole illusory world you're operating from. So what the Buddha encourages us to do is to wake up out of this illusion. So this awakeness is is a natural state. It's not created. It's not personal. It's real. And it's this. Don't look at me. (laughs) Not me. <clears throat> so uh, you know, just encouraging you all to 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 recognize what an opportunity this is. You know, this is this uh, very ancient teaching. But it is, you know, it's very skillful teaching if used properly. And to use it properly, you know, you need apply it to your to this being here, to yourself, not in, not to criticize or to compare with somebody else or with ideals of of how you would like to be, because you'll only, you know, you. Create an ideal of what you'd like to be, you'll only be disappointed in the realities of being the way you are. <clears throat> Even after 40 years of the monk, you know, on a personal level, its I'm not an ideal person, I'll tell you, as you all know that live with me. <clears throat> My personality will never get enlightened. Uh, you know, because that's just not what personalities do. They're created, they're conditioned, they're limited, they arise and cease according to other conditions. So enlightenment doesn't lie in trying to change your personality or get a better personality, but in realizing what personality is. this. sakya ditti realizing it discerning that it. it's like this not criticizing and saying i have i have a terrible personality or i should be a more loving person or i shouldn't be so negative a person that that's then you're back in the in judging and and how you know and comparing and knowing how things should be and feeling uh, quite critical of the way you you really are. But discerning the personality is awareness. This sense of me and mine. What I like and don't like. What I want. Who I am. What I've attained in life. Or what I, how I've failed. How I've succeeded. How important. Or how insignificant I am. This is all sakya being American, being male—this is all like. These are identities, concepts that that arise in these. So, I encourage you to to practice with this. Prove it to yourself, so that the butti weighty that third aspect of each noble truth, the direct knowing, the The confidence—it's confidence based on wisdom, not confidence based on on uh, conceit. The bhāvanā is is, uh, the insight knowledge that you get through practice, through seeing for yourself. So it's not conceit, thinking that you you have uh, your authority on Buddhism, but it's it's a direct knowing. On the real, the real, the reality of Dhamma. Dhamma is real. Dhamma is reality. So I'll stop here and let you contemplate that. Next week.